So welcome to the Idea Market Podcast. We are joined once again by CEO Mike Elias, and we are joined by Buster Benson, uh, argument extraordinaire, author of <laughs> Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement, which was published uh, November 2019, um, alongside being a prominent blogger and many, many other things. So I'll, I'll hand that over to you, Buster. Tell us a little bit about yourself what it is you do and uh what it is it what is it at the moment that is uh you know what what what's your direction at the moment what's the thing that's really making you driven at the moment oh man survival is one um so yeah my i guess my career has been in tech i was an entrepreneur i started a couple companies often in the like health improvement behavior change space like habit labs and um robot co-op and 43 things um long time ago. Um, I've also been a product manager at places like Amazon, Twitter, Slack, um, most recently at Patreon. And then I sort of left tech in 2018, I think, um, to write a book about productive disagreement, applying a lot of those things I had learned um, from working in product and working in like sort of entrepreneurship and business um, to an approachable book about how to actually um, make disagreements more productive and more fruitful. Um, and now I run a site called 750 Words, which is a private journaling website, and it's been around for 11 years, but I'm now, for the first time, spending all of my time on it. Um, that's not spent on parenting and being in a pandemic during fires and, and chaos. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot going on. If I mean, we have this question at the moment to sort of uh, open up the the bit about yourself. If you were to design a course, uh, a study course, which was basically to teach everyone who took the course to become like you in time, what would that course curriculum entail? That's interesting. I mean, that's sort of the question I asked myself when I was writing the book is, you know, what are the practical steps towards, I mean, there's a lot more to me as a human and to everyone than just our style of um conversation and disagreement. But I think when you sort of look at everything through that lens, it does sort of start to encapsulate all of your like, core identity beliefs and your sort of your responses and your risk aversion and all these other things. And just even like your your aptitude for fun and enjoyment and all these things to just... So if I was to create a course, um, you know, it, would, it would really be around conversation and about how to like art of productive disagreement, which is how do you use this really important skill we have, like communicating with each other, to actually grow as humans, to get inside about the world, to enjoy each other's company, to like do all these things that actually make us feel closer together, uh, make us feel like we live more meaningful lives. Um, and so I, I have like these eight steps that I that I talk about, but. Um, yeah, I think that would, I mean, and I've considered making that a course. I just, I'm not very good at making courses, so <laughs> I haven't done it yet. How did you realize over time that your particular style of argument or disagreement was something that was very important to you or like a key strength? Uh, how did that kind of isolate itself and, and show itself to be like a really uh, you know foundational gift that you have? Um, I don't know if it is a gift. I think I first realized that I wasn't good at it and that, that I thought I was better than I, I was and that despite thinking that I was good at it, I was like the outcomes were not 
pleasing to me <laughs> or to anyone. Um, and so it was like this wake up moment of realizing, oh wait, you know, civil disagreement alone isn't enough. You know, skirting around difficult topics alone isn't gonna actually make any of us feel any better in the long term. Um, and so at the same time, I realized that the thing I had been doing in my career this whole time was, you know, as a sort of person in like never, usually never CEO, usually never like, like, like the programmer, you know, writing the code or the designer, um, somewhere in the middle of making decisions, making strategies, um, is that my main value has always been sort of like sifting through the noise and finding the truth, um, even if it looks bad um, to leadership, even if it looks bad to um, people that are, that are on my team, as long as it's true, as long as it actually works. Um, and so I sort of married these two ideas of like, okay, I'm really bad at this in a conversational way, but I'm good at this in a sort of tactical product building way. Um, what if I try to blend them together and, and apply that? And so then I spent a couple of years um, testing that theory of like, maybe this could apply to that and realize it didn't work. It did work and it changed how I saw everything, um, basically. Awesome. What are some uh, observations you've made that other people might not see or some things that you... Well, the, 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 the easiest one, which I'm sure you're familiar with as well, is that you know, disagreement is rarely about facts. <laughs> it's, um, it's oftentimes about um, a value of some sort. Like, I value this more than this. Um, and when you're arguing about facts, but you're really clinging to the value, you're never going to get to resolution. Um, and the only way out of it really is to apply it to something. Say, like, okay, well, if this is true, then this will happen, or this will... I think this will happen more than that will happen. Um, and that's not a thing you can go argue about. You actually make the prediction or whatever, and you wait for and see if you were right. And then regardless of whether or not you're right or wrong, you learn something, everybody learns something. So it's another sort of ritual or sort of a social practice where everybody gains something from it and you don't have to waste all your time in the present arguing about it. You can just make the prediction and wait. Yeah. We were, um, we talked to Robin Hanson a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about making predictions within organizations and using prediction markets and mechanisms like that within organizations. And he was explaining to us how difficult it is to convince leadership to implement such things <laughs> yes. because generally leadership is sort of more about politics and appearances in a lot of, you know, established organizations than it is about tracking and spreadsheets and exactitude. He described it as he described using prediction markets in an organization as putting an autist in the C-suite. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. And and you know <laughs> that's not always welcome. So I'm I'm interested in how you in in your various opportunities have been able to sort of blend the predictive with the political. I've been able to blend the, you know, uh, cl clinical kind of approach with the personal yeah, relationships. Yeah, that's that. so true. And I, so w one of the products I built was Twitter analytics and I, I've always really been into like just looking at numbers and trying to analyze them. Um, and one of the things that I always had to represent to an organization is that when you look at information, 
the first feeling you're going to have is discomfort and sort of sadness and probably disappointment because you're going to realize that what you thought was true isn't true. Most of the time we're, we sort of tend to stretch, you know, we emphasize the positive stuff and we de-emphasize the negative. Um, and that feeling of discomfort or um, sort of cognitive dissonance is always the first experience. So anytime you're sort of bringing a new practice, like prediction to an organization or a team or even to a person, it's hard to sell it because the first thing that, I mean, if you say, okay, well, make a prediction. Okay, well, first of all, there's a delay. It's not instant gratification. Second of all, they're probably going to be wrong and that's going to be sad. And then they're not going to be like, oh, wait, I'm in an organization where if I don't have 100% job sort of security and I don't, want, I don't want to be the first fool to step out there and make a fool of myself when people are already trying to like sort of politic around me and, and edge, edge me out of my position. So I think the key that I've sort of led with often is to really emphasize this discomfort and how like cognitive dissonance is the product of a lot of these practices and to sort of glorify that as like, this is what learning feels like. This is what it means to actually have a feedback loop is to feel sad when you were wrong. Um, and that's, that's good. It's that, you know, that tension between you and reality that, you know, it feels a little bit like burning, but you know, it's, it's actually really healthy. And if you can get people really hooked on that, then, um, you know, depending on who it is, like some, some leaders and CEOs or, you know, people will be like, oh yeah, I want to be the guy that is really okay with being uncomfortable because that's sort of a, that's, that is a good identity to have. Um, and, you know, then that can maybe like set the seed, the, the fire that helps people sort of adopt it. But it has to be, somebody really has to put their neck out there. Sometimes it would be me and I, I'm fine being wrong as, as you know, it's, I'm, I like being wrong um, at this point. Um, but yeah, it has to be somebody that has enough clout in the organization to really like set the example and let people start to emulate that. That's awesome. I love the. I love the approach that you're talking about with respect to fully embracing the pain of this and making it public and part of the frame and even glorifying it. It sort of reminds me of mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, the four noble truths. Like the first one is mm -hmm. life is suffering. Like first get this down. This is going to suck folks. And like the more readily uh, and voluntarily we can accept mm -hmm. that, the yeah. less true it is in a certain way. Like, uh, I just, I just really enjoy that, you know, in, in institutions, uh, that, that approach to things. I'm trying yeah. to think, how can we be uncomfortable? And that's where all the good stuff is hidden. It's like, usually the more averse you are to being wrong, the more sort of gems of information there are hiding underneath that, that, that could be surfaced. Like they're closer to the surface because they're more like strongly resisted. Um, and I oftentimes create like a document that's like, the, what's the moose in the room? And I, like anytime I start a new job, it'd be like, yeah. I'll go and talk to every single person. Like, what is the thing that you can't talk about in this organization because it's been shut down or someone like, it's just like, there was a, an experiment once and it went really poorly. And now like no one, or it's like this pet peeve that the, the leadership team has, that's question that everyone hates to, but there's always something right below the surface that's like, oh wait, yeah, we should reconsider this. Is there is there a correlation from from all the people you've spoken to? Is there, is there like one thing that you're like, oh, it's that again? The same thing always crops up. In terms of what the what the what the topic is? Yeah, like what what is is there a common moose in the room across a lot of institutions? No, I don't think so. It's like um, 
it, it really depends on the culture and the sort of evolution of of the company. Like, for example, at Slack, like it was about um, building a community, like like a a, a public um, version of Slack, not for companies, but for individuals and communities. Um, you know, at Patreon, there was there was a whole bunch of stuff like around like small small donations and um, these things. Um, you know also discovering like being patron sort of centric instead of creator centric um so it, it the really specific things that are like oftentimes like you know every every team wants to be like here are our priorities here are three things those three things mean that we're not doing these 10 things and usually four five six are are things that you know you don't have to do them but you should still talk about them because just in case they do end up being the thing that might kill you <laughs> if you don't do it like you should reevaluate every once in a while and see if they're if that's if that's changed because every company changes and every market changes so so would you say that if we were speaking you know your book's titled the art of productive disagreement would you say that unproductive disagreement is basically two people or two parties or multiple parties who are disagreeing but it's clear that each member just simply wants to stay comfortable no one wants to address discomfort Yes, although they could have a terrible time and it's it still come away feeling like like most disagreements that go poorly, like they they first of, I, I sort of define them as they they lack the certain fruit of disagreement. They lack insight. You don't learn anything about the other person's position that helps you relate to why they have it. You don't enjoy that time. Like you don't feel closer to that person. Like it's these things that like those are the fruits, and without those fruit, it's unproductive. Um, but that said, like a really angry rant might be extremely un like unpleasant, but also you might be very attached to feeling that unpleasantness, right? Like you might want to feel unpleasant about. I want to feel terrible about the fact that that person is so evil because it somehow confirms my beliefs and also makes me feel closer to the people next to me. Um, so, but yeah. So it's not just about the pleasantness feeling, the, the the enjoyment of it, but it's about did anything positive come out of it? No, then it's unproductive. I've I have I have so much to to reflect on here. And I have a a, a friend on Twitter, Brute DeForce, has a, a tweet. He says that truth seeking is pain seeking. And that seems to apply in a lot of different directions and contexts. And in unproductive disagreements where there's nothing that uh, that is useful that comes out of it there's no understanding of the other person there's no insight that comes out of it i wonder if what they're what those conversations are doing is pursuing the pleasure of victory pursuing the pleasure of dominance that it's not actually pain seeking it's pleasure seeking yeah it's the ple the pleasure of coherence you know belief coherence and identity coherence and belonging to my my group yeah. I wonder along the lines of pain seeking in institutions, in companies, are there any like stock questions you would recommend institutions can ask? Like if like our CEOs, like what like if what if I were to have a meeting with with everyone on the idea market team and say, all right, guys, what are our unpleasant truths? Something like that. Do you have you know other ideas that have worked? Yeah, I mean, my go-to is always like, "What am I missing? Like, what what am I? What have you tried to tell me that I can't hear?" Um, 
what did you, what is what are things that exist in this organization that you think would help it, but that somehow can't aren't are never like brought to the table? Like, what are people afraid of saying? Like these kinds of things are the ones that will you know it'll be very uncomfortable for you. I can guarantee. Um, but if you can write them down and not use it as ammo to then go and and like chop off a bunch of heads, then I think right. it could lead to something good. Because <laughs> you really need to reassure, like it's not going to happen until they feel trust, which is sort of this chicken and egg problem. But if they do feel trust on some level, then they can start surfacing these things. That, I mean, that's really interesting because it's an interesting thing here that when you're asking people these questions, it seems they actually already have the answers, but there's been a reluctance to like reveal them or admit to them or, you know, it's finally probably like a catharsis. They're like, finally, someone's like, ask that major question there's been this thing under surface the whole time and it almost seems like actually most of these companies might already have their answers have their truth there so why do you think it is that there's almost a reluctance to you know do you think it's mostly sunk cost that people are reluctant to just finally sort of let their guard down and admit to like this this as you call it the moose in the room yeah and i think it's job security you know nobody so there's there's everyone has a job you know and everyone knows that their job mm. has this this circle around it like this is my job if something is happening over here i can plausibly deny that i even though i know it's going terribly i can plausibly deny that it wasn't my job to do that and so therefore i didn't need to bring i didn't need to be the messenger of that i don't want to sabotage that team or that person um by bringing that to the, someone else so um there's a lot of these sort of self-preservation um sort of also, you know, you probably don't know the answer 100%. You might have a hunch. And so to actually dig up what is going, what the truth is would require work that then takes you away from your other job. And so all, this, all these sort of constraints in our day-to-day like, lead up to the fact that like willful blindness is is just a survival trait. It's part of the functioning sort of DNA of any community or group um, just to keep people pointing in the same direction um, and getting things done, even if it's the wrong thing to get done. The costs of sticking one's neck out and venturing beyond their sort of assigned territory speaks to the constant sort of cost-benefit analysis that we're doing psychologically about, do I seek the truth about this thing? Do I say the truth about this thing? That sometimes it's more costly or uh, less beneficial or the obviousness of those things are uh, different or confused. Uh, I read an ebook. I don't remember who wrote it. I would love to give this guy credit. I'll put it in the show notes later. But he was talking about sales as activation potential. Like there's this neurology, I think, term, activation potential. And it refers to like when the chemicals on one side of a synapse, like, build up against the side of a dam or something. And then when they mm-hmm. break the dam, then that's when the thing fires and the and you take the action or whatever. Like there's a sort of uh, conflict of storm fronts or something. And then mm-hmm. only when that stalemate is broken, something sort of automatically happens. And when we're weighing, do I want to risk my job? Is this truth really important? It's like there's this motivational you know, battle for activation happening. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think that's yeah. really, that's really cool. Yeah. There's a question people always ask me about productive disagreement is like, do I need to go out and start every single disagreement with every single person I have? And, and, and like, and the truth is like, we, 
like you say, like we have limited constraints, we have limited energy, attention, sort of willpower. Like we're 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 like trapped in all of these constraints, time, space, um, and so you have to choose your battles on some level. It's just it's it's not a choice. It's just a, a, yeah. a, a fact of the universe that we have to um, sort of we can't address everything that needs to be addressed in any given day. Yeah, one of the arguments and battles that is harder to avoid these days and maybe shouldn't be avoided is uh, how people are dealing with COVID both as a society and as individuals. And I feel safe, you know, bringing this up, uh, especially in the context of practicing productive disagreements. Uh, but I have uh, a lot of friends who are really suspicious of of the COVID vaccine and the cost benefit analysis of taking it. Mm -hmm. I share those views as well, but my whole family doesn't. And I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way. How, what are some ways you would recommend in, in having these kinds of conversations that are very heated, very high stakes, or at least seem that way, and to split families down the middle on a regular basis? Yeah, yeah, this is a, I mean, I love this one because it is such a perfect microcosm of, of some of my favorite disagreements. Like this is a risk risk analysis, right? This is, you know, both on the individual and the group and the world level. Um, and so I think the right approach, and I've taken this with some people, is to, you know, put aside the facts. Like we, we know, we can all look at facts. Um, and there's a lot of dispute about what they are, but you know, let's put this on my side. Let's talk about, you know, what is important to me? Like, why why is it important to me that I get the vaccine or don't get a vaccine? We could potentially relate to each other in the sense of like, we want to, we both want to um, increase the well-being of, of our communities. Um, we both want to increase the well-being of our families and our sort of societies and also our um, happiness and mental health and all these things. Um, and then, you know, if you can relate on that level, find something in there, then I think the next step would be to turn it into like, okay, well, what would, what do you think is going to happen? Like, so the world, regardless of what we believe, things are happening and we can sort of imagine like, oh, if everyone just got the vaccine, then this would happen. If no one got the vaccine, then this would happen. Um, you know, if, but reality is it's in the middle somewhere um, and things are happening and our wiggle room is really small. It's like you know, the difference between me getting a vaccine or you getting a vaccine or, or not, um, how much is that going to change the path of the future? Um, and, you know, you can make predictions. It could be like, well, if I, if I got COVID, I wouldn't infect anyone and nobody would die um, and I would be better in a month. Um, or it could be like, well, if I got COVID because I have health issues, I might be in the hospital for a little bit. Or, or maybe, you know, my grandmother would get it from me. I don't know, whatever it is. But you can at least start talking about like, what are the outcomes or the things that I can see in the world that would change one way or another? And talk about that and see like, okay, well, then let's check back in in a month because I'm not going to change your mind. You're not going to change my mind. Let's just check back in in a month and see like, are the numbers, who was closer and what can we learn from that? Um, I really avoid like, you know, I've vaccination disagreements were a huge problem before COVID. Um, and now they are not, they haven't changed in character. They've just changed in volume, I believe, but it's essentially the same thing. And so I, I think that, if we put aside the fact like, okay, let's assume that we're not going to change each other's mind. What can we learn from each other? How can we see whether or not one of us is 
able to anticipate the future um, more productively and, and maybe learn from each other that way. I like that. So if I, I want to summarize and make sure I'm hearing what I think I'm hearing. So if there are three layers to what you're saying here, they would be start with values, start with what we both, uh, each and both in common, value what we're trying to do, what we think is important, where our heart is, uh, establish some common ground, hopefully, and then talk about what we predict would happen in conditional type statements. If we do this, then I'd expect we'd see that. Talk about the risk analysis of those things and what might be really worth it for me or you, depending on what we just said about our values. And then establish uh, that there's no rush to solve this in this conversation, that we're both you know, interested and invested in, in this question and give ourselves time to reflect and breathe and, and see how it goes. Yeah. And, and an unspoken first one, which is don't talk about, don't start passing two and a half hour interviews back and forth. Like, just watch this, you know, because it's just going to, it creates work and it doesn't actually, yeah. it's not going to change anybody's mind. Um, so don't do that. But start with, yeah, start with the heart stuff, like the values and beliefs, and then go to the predictions and then reiterate that, like, you know, it's really about our relationship and we're going to be our friends in, an, in a month. So let's check back in in a month. And, and see where we are. It's a lot less um, grief than the alternatives. And um, I would say that like, there is no, there's no downside to the strategy because either way we're gonna come around with, with a different change of mind. Um, and we avoid the like pushing each other away from each other and, and then becoming more entrenched in our own position. Yeah, I'm fascinated with the absence of the role of facts here. And I agree with your reasoning. I see the value here. It's very interesting that that's so different from what public discourse in a mainstream sense is emphasizing. Right. And that's why it's so unproductive, <laughs> I think. I mean, we, we think that facts are the thing that will resolve this. Um, when facts are never as easy to identify, especially when we come from different, if we don't trust the same sources for truth, there is no fact. There are no common facts. So there's nothing there yeah and we end up becoming like now we've got anxiety about another the other like there's, a, there's this group of people that have that believe in a false god and now they're a threat and i have to start feeling that way yeah yeah i could not agree more about trust being the you know the protocol layer of facts if you don't have that then facts are conjectures you really need to have something else before you can have that and we have to start treating trust as the more foundational uh, unit of of public knowledge, or or what's happening now will just keep happening. Yeah, it's, it's it is backwards. It's not how we think rationally, but it's definitely how we think emotionally and intuitively. And like I always say, like if you are at a table and you can, one of my one of my um, sort of workshop kind of ideas is often to like anytime you're at a table and you can sort of feel tense like take a temperature check of the goodwill in the room. Like who in this room would you give, uh, you know, buy lunch for? Who in this room would you drive to the airport? Who in this room would you help move? Who in this room would you give a hug if they were crying? Um, if you don't have those feelings for them, then there isn't going to be a productive disagreement. The entire focus should be on establishing that goodwill first. Um, and that's hard to do because 
that's why it's an art. That's why it's not a science. It's like, I have to build a relationship with you before I can actually, like my, in my head, when I have a disagreement with someone, I have to get to the point where they ask me for my opinion and they, they want to know it because <laughs> until then there's no point in me saying it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you called it an art and not a science. I mean, what do you make of the, the, I mean, I'm thinking predominantly of um, how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie, you know, one of the early examples of, of books relating to obviously winning friends and influencing people. But he, I would argue that he approaches it more as a science, like just do these steps. I mean, say people's first names over and over again on all these sort of almost uh, robotic steps. In what sense do you, uh, can you b- begin to describe what an art is in relation to disagreement? Yeah, so I just make a I distinguish, I distinguish between what I call persuasion and disagreement and sort of um, conversation because I think Dale Carnegie in this, these books and most books about disagreement are about persuasion. Like, how do I convince people that I'm right? How do I sell something to this person? How do I get them to concede to my belief or my stance? Um, and that's that, that's a science. That's a military science, right? That's like that's like how do you get people to, you know, realize like that you're better than them. <laughs> um, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the art, which is building the communities, building the trust, building the relationships. Um, and at, many times they're even at odds, even though they get confused with each other um, quite often. So I think it's an art in the sense like there isn't a, there aren't tricks. There aren't like gimmicks that you can be like, I'm just going to like saying someone's name a lot, you know, will get them to, sort of like perk up in the, you know, in, in a, a certain way, but it's not going to get them to trust you. In fact, at this point, it might get them to distrust you because you're like, oh, you're one of those people that's going to try to persuade me. It's <laughs> exactly my reaction. Have you had any arguments lately that have proceeded in a surprising way? Yeah. Like what's, you know, what have, what's, what have some sparks been? Yeah, I've had plenty. <laughs> I, I have a lot. Um, I mean, there are a lot, I don't know if, we've talked about COVID too much, but there have, you know, I, I am in, I am in communities that are both on the extreme, you know, skeptical side and the extreme like adamant side. Um, and then a lot of people that are on the extreme exhausted side of everything. Um, and I have this bad habit of arguing with people in those communities or disagreeing with people in those communities when really that's not always, so I, I always like check myself like to, to does this community want disagreement? Um, and oftentimes the answer is no. And if that's the case, then I have I have to sort of step back a little bit and be like, okay, well, this is that's not that's interesting, but I'm not I don't need to participate in that and just like rallying each other up. So usually most of my energy goes into calibrate like calibrating myself to understand like how can I shift this from just a ranting place to a curious place um and that first task is 90 percent of the work almost all the time and so it doesn't matter what the topic is it could be like because like usually it's far away from that usually it's like someone drops an article it's like here's a two and a half hour video about this you know doctor saying here's here's why ivermectin or it's like is being maligned or whatever and everyone's like yeah 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 no one wants to be like, okay, I watched that whole thing. First of all, it takes a long time. And I have these questions. Can you help me understand them? Um, versus, and then on the other hand, there could be like someone drops a link that's like, 
9% of doctors and nurses aren't vaccinated, you know, like they know the most. So like, what's wrong? What's up what's this? What's their secret? What do they know that we don't know? And, um, and people are like, gosh, why can't they just fire those doctors and nurses? And like, well, what are like, <laughs> so there's all these kind of questions that like would, would be used there too, to like, sort of like, well, you should, we should talk to them and figure this out and not just assume that they're evil people that need to be fired. Um, so that's, I think, and it's surprising to me how hard that is always, because it's always, even amongst groups of people that are fairly um, comfortable with discomfort and aware of disagreement as, as a productive thing, um, we always have blind spots and we always have certain positions that we get entrenched in and, and don't see how entrenched we are. One of the things I like to ask friends is, what are you, what do you know you can't be rational about? Mm-hmm. Do they know? Do they answer? Uh, a lot of people answer, yeah. Uh, I think I've tweeted that out a couple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's Israel-Palestine. I'm Jewish. That's a good one, and yes. My, I, my parents, uh, my, my grandparents survived the Holocaust. And I don't know anything about the Israel-Palestine conflict at all. But, you know, I just, you know, if it comes down to anything, I'm waving the Israel flag just by default and not thinking about it at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. That's a really good one. I mean, I, I, that's one where I also came in. I've, I've never, I don't have any history that even connects me to it. And um, so I, I, I'm oftentimes like fairly naive. And then that's why I, I, I try to catch up. There's just so much history, so much, so gray and murky. And, and I'm like, well, this is hard. This could be my whole life to like figure that, to think about this. Yeah. So um, I, I do like to talk to people about that because I, that's one where I could actually learn a lot. Um, same with like you know Afghanistan right now, and like like there's just it's clear just by like peeling apart off the surface a little bit, like there's a whole can of worms in there, and to think that I know the answers or that I have the solution to something like that um, off the bat by reading a news headline, like it's it's funny, <laughs> it's funny that we can do that. I'd love to get your take on some predictions, like when you're talking about peeling layers. I expect that when when you've done that a lot, you've found kernels. That might not be obvious, or that might have uh, implications that don't get talked about very much. So, I'd love to hear what you think is uh, coming, not only in like a futurist predictive sense, but what kinds of knowledge are you long on in a market sense? What would you bet will become important um, Man. to the public? I mean, I see, I see this current world is like entrenched in a rolling wicked problem of apocalypses and you know, like it's there's there's and as it becomes more and more entangled with each thing like um there's no one topic that is isolated from the other they're all sort of intertwined they all have like these sure these connections and so is there one that you're particularly a specialist in or feel of uh, equipped to address like a particular <laughs> pressure point that you might I'm an expert push. in nothing um including disagreement I mean of course <laughs> I'm, right okay so just uh, starting from that basic assumption like ignoring you know the the sheer ridiculousness of of it yeah you know just I think, I'm interested I think in those there's a meta I have a meta prediction um which is that we have to stop looking for heroes um, and like stop trying to address problems with, you know, 
a big hammer. Um, like we can't just bomb the climate change problem. We can't just like, you know, murder, you know, um, racism. Like, it's just like, these are problems that like, no matter what you do, <laughs> the problem works, like it's going to like borg itself around it. Um, so we have to shift from even looking for solutions like that. So I guess the prediction that I'm long on, like as far as information goes, is that like, you know, I have this low confidence, slightly high feeling prediction that fiction has to change. Like the way that we tell stories, the, like right now, like we're as far down like the hero's journey, Marvel story. Like we just are eating that up because it's so clean and crisp and just works. Um, and we have to let go of that. that. Um, and we have to start telling stories that are much where it's not clear who the good guy and the bad guy are, where it's not cl- like no one can like no one can leap off the roof and stab the white knight and like and and like the, the what the, are they called now? The, I forgot the winter, the Game of Thrones guy. Um, and then all the zombies die and everyone's back to normal. Like it's always like, OK, you kill one zombie. What about the rest? You know, there's going to be so many more. Um, so and I think it starts with like our expectations from conversations and from reading the news are emotionally centered around how we tell stories. And if we can start telling stories where, you know, it sort of weaves in that discomfort of a of no perfect solution, then we will start to understand our problems better um, and be able to actually stick with them long enough to, to solve them and to focus less on like, okay, we'll just go, go bomb them um, as the solution to everything. Um, but I don't know if that's not, not quite probably what you're expecting, but that was my the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> no, but I, I do like it. I do like it. And there are, there are aspects of that that I could not agree more with, like the very Hydra-like nature of most of the problems and the resolute uh, unwillingness to stop chopping heads. Like we're just, we're just, this is the only way to destroy a thing is with sheer offense. Like the America's world's best, you know, America's best strategists can't all really think that. And yet somehow that's what we keep doing. So hundred percent on that. I really, I think it's very interesting that you talk about fiction as like this cultural uh, frame creator for how we solve problems and things like that. And I actually think something kind of reverse to what you were saying. I'd love to hash this out a little bit. It was my dad actually who pointed out in, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago that a lot of TV and pop culture was becoming about more gray area type main characters. I think he was referring at the time to the Sopranos. Like Tony Soprano is this awful guy who kills people and does all kinds of awful things. And yet the journey of the show is the viewer sympathizing with him and just kind of like having his back. And it's a far cry from the 50s, like white cowboy versus black cowboy. And I mean, their dress is not their skin colors, just to be perfectly (laughs) clear. And uh, yeah, I think there is something. Yeah, I I suspect that developing public sympathy for uh, bad people might be destructive, Mm. might help people do that. But that's not really the point I want to make. That's not really the point I want to make. Um, the point I want to make is that evil is the lazy path to interesting. If we're watching someone go around and do all the things that we can't do, we're like, oh my mm, God, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. He's breaking all the rules. 
But if we can portray someone who's good and interesting, that's much harder. But I think that's the healthy route. If we can see heroes who are compelling and make us want to emulate and imitate and fantasize about that, that I would love to see. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. I don't think you disagree with me. Okay. I think I could just clarify something, which is I think that, well, there's the hero's journey. And I think there is also like this anti-hero's journey, like the like the Sopranos or Watchmen or like, I don't know, maybe like Battlestar Galactica or like there, there's a few of these um, Lolita. Like we could like identify, like sort of like have some sympathy for the, for the anti-hero, but the anti-hero is still a hero just with, a different character, and I think that the real dichotomy that has, or and, and I and I, I think that's a healthy. I mean, I think there is some value there. So maybe we disagree about that a little bit, but I think there's another dimension of difference, which is identifying with the individual and the individual solution over like that has a, that's a perfect fix to a problem versus the like the. And the spam filter approach to spam, like the spam filter is not a single approach. Like it's got like every single signal in the book. It's not, you can't explain it to anyone. No one understands it, but it somehow like it works. Um, and we need to think of solutions like that, which are like, let's fix this problem across a thousand fronts and have a lot of patience and assume that, you know, a third of those are going to backfire and be, make the problem worse. A third of them are going to do nothing. And a third of them are going to like make it better. But our ability to add more and more of these solutions over the long term will slowly increase the percentage of chance of fixing it. And so it makes it, it's a terrible narrative structure. Um, and I think that's part of why, like, I, and so I'm, I'm, and my prediction is that like, we will start to crack this because I, th I think there is a need for this more complicated narrative structure to exist if we're going to survive. And I, I think that, um, I think it, we will at least give it a, I think there's a chance that we will, we will find it. Um, and I, yeah, so I, I don't know. I think, and I think television is, especially like on these Netflix and HBO series, like they are starting to, even Marvel is starting to un, like dip its toes into like, what if there isn't a solution to this problem? What if there's a multiverse? What if there's, you know, you know, you could you could snap your fingers and have. The, like, I don't know if you watched the latest Doctor Strange um, series, was the Loki Loki series, um, where like the the god of that of that series. I'm not going to spoil it, but like it sort of gives them like you could have all your fake solution problems solved, and but it was like a fake solution because it would be like sending them to a part of the multiverse that they didn't belong to, um, and they didn't take it. When in reality, that's what we always take, and every single story is what we always take that. That path, and I don't know. I think there's an awareness. I think it is bubbling up, and I don't know. I hope it works. I hope there's something there. But I, but I do agree with you that like just glorifying evil as like a, like you know the like the Donald Trump character is like oh yeah he's he's the antihero and therefore he will save us. That's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, we should not confuse antihero with common man, or we'll make the common man into antiheroes. I think yes. that would be a bad outcome. Yeah. Yeah, that is happening too. I was just going to add in here, Mike, on what you were saying about how, um, you know, like the villains, villains always doing the interesting stuff. And it's usually the, the, the hero that were like, oh, okay, cool. They win, like whatever. One of the frustrations I have with a lot of modern media, and I mean, maybe, maybe you guys will disagree, but almost always I'm annoyed the villain didn't win because the villains are always the most competent. Like their plan is always, their 
extremely logical. They're extremely competent. And I think the annoyance from modern media is there is a huge amount of luck on the part of the good person. Like something happens and they're like, they just about make it. Whereas I think there's a frustration there where in real life, it's like, yeah, we can't really rely on that. The villains evil is, is winning in a sense here in terms of in relation to global warming, in relation to a lot of uh, global catastrophes. Evil is just extremely competent. And I'm not sure modern media does the best, the best of sort of uh, giving you the perception that, that villains just like suddenly fail. Like villains have the best people behind them. Like, and that is my annoyance with a lot of modern media is like, no, 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 they would have won. Like, come on, this is just, this is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Sorry, that's just, that's just a digression. That's not a digression. It's, it's the exact same thing. It's like, give every villain, like everything but an Achilles heel. And if you just tap him on that heel, he's, he's dead, you know? So it doesn't matter how great, like you can make him as competent and powerful as possible, as long as like his Achilles heel. Like even that, that's the, that's the, God of the machine that I hate in narratives, like where they add that and, and it's just like, it's over. I guess you could say in real, li- in real life, the Death Star doesn't have that one point that yeah. if you shoot it. Like in real right. life, they'd have been like, you know that one point that if you shoot it, it all blows up. Let's like fully focus everything on making sure that never happens. Yeah, right? They wouldn't perfect. build it like that in real life. <laughs> no, nothing has that. Nothing I has wonder that if in real life, the... Death Star would have like a memo that if it gets leaked would bring them down. It's like an informational hazard <laughs> rather than a physical one. <laughs> yeah, but information war is just as is like, you know, all multi-front as Absolutely. As so I else, think what so. they would do is it, you know, it would obviously get out because everything always gets out, but it would be the it would be relegated to the domain of conspiracy theories. It would just be unacknowledged mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. decades. Fake news. Decades. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're past that point. Like, there's no, there's, there's no information that's going to be, you know, the the knife in the back or heel kind of thing anymore. Well, like, I'm optimistic that if we can orient our attention to the right pressure points, then we can sort of do a little, you know, pressure point martial art on the giant evil structures and bring them down. But if 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 we try to chase every single tiny hint of scandal. There won't ever collect enough willpower and attention on a single point to have any effect. I think part part of the part of the strategy of uh, intransigent uh, tyrannical power structures is to keep people from staying on one thing at a time. That if because hmm. if if we were to just focus on the 2008 crisis and like not think about anything else for five years, the whole system would change. But in, you know, every two weeks, there's some other, other thing when we keep kind of getting pulled along by all those things. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, that's a big if, you know, if only we could focus, you know, right. Very, right. Right. And that's, that's sort of, that's sort of like, genius. Like, <laughs> Try getting ten people to do the same thing at the same time. Like it's really hard, right? Yeah. Um, so saying it is only has you know marginal utility. There's there's hardly any use in in saying it. But if we can figure out ways to make it profitable to do the thing or hmm. reward, like just change yeah. the cost benefit of being distracted, um, then there might be something. Well, well there is. That. It's capitalism. You know, yeah. you just can't choose what to focus on. But you could you could guarantee that everyone will be focused on something. <laughs> some for some against you know some some creating all the problems and then some trying to fix the problems um but yeah i think 
there's um, there's there's another thing. Even if we could all focus on the on the same thing long enough to fix the problem, um, and I do have hope for that too. In a sense of like, if we could, if we could as a culture like move from talking about the facts to talking about predictions, for example, I think that is like a capitalism in terms of like it shifts the way we focus on things instead of just shifting where we focus. Um, but even that, like, if there are still bad relationships between communities, that war is always going to exist. One person's going to push on that climate change fix button. Another person's going to push on the climate change make it bad version button. Um, and there's still going to be this button war, and it's not going to it's not going to work. <laughs> so anytime we make people good at pushing the button, we'll get we'll also be making people good at pushing the opposite direction. And so that's interesting. It's it's still a problem about inter interrelationships. Um, yeah, I like that. That it seems like there's no like trans Dunbar's number way of like you you can't scale peace just automatically. It's something that has to be grassroots or decentralized to use some of the buzzwords of the day. Am I hearing something like that? I, yeah, I think it needs to become. I do think it has to be like each person uh, um, has to ex want has to like become good enough at the skill to actually expect disagreements to be productive and expect our leaders to have productive disagreements and expect our countries to have product incorporate like we have to it's really the expectation but it has to start with your own ability to to like make it feasible to understand how to do it and to sort of see it in practice for you know a, a number of times before that expectation really starts to set and so it has to there's no like brainwashing method that's like going to be like you know and if there was that would be a terrible idea <laughs> so yeah and that's that's part of my big gripe about facts too is that best case scenario they're going to be used for censorship you have the best facts in the world it's going to lead directly to the best censorship in the world yeah yeah it's like you know the the lovely you know how how do you yeah how, who gets to be in charge of censorship <laughs> it's like who's going to control the, the controller like, so no matter what there still has to be that trust you have to build a trust because anything can be taken advantage of yeah absolutely i'd love to uh hear more of your uh predictions or undervalued and what's what's the undervalued knowledge in the world what are what you know what are what are people missing i think we don't see how social media in particular is ruining us um ruining our ability to have complex nuanced views about things um and ruining our ability to empathize with people that have different views than us so i, I think there's and now as a person that's complicit in the creation of some of these technologies like i i'm i feel particularly strong about it because i feel also guilty of, of creating it and in, in a small way um that we we sort of like we're all smoking cigarettes so we don't realize that it causes cancer like we're in that sort of middle period where like we're dying of anxiety and stress and suicide and drug overuse because we feel like you know we the world is uh, is messed up and everyone's evil and it's all going to fall apart but we don't realize that we're creating the environment where that's happening with our own participation in it so i think that's one that i predict like i don't i don't know what my prediction is it would be hopefully we build like we build enough knowledge about how it is affecting us that we learn to moderate it a little bit like moderate our own participation i don't mean like 
censorship and moderating the information. I mean, like self-moderating ourselves to like know when we're adding, making it worse by being part of it. Yeah, I mean, there's something interesting going on there, just to go back to the sort of the, the villain narrative, if we sort of see social media as a villain and that idea, Mike, that you had that it would be an information problem. I wonder if um, social media is almost one in, in terms of the information problem that social media now has on it anti-social media documentaries and things, right? So like Netflix is promoting the, uh, what was it called? The social dilemma. And you sort of find this deep irony when it's like basically people staring at their phones being like, man, phones are so bad. Look <laughs> at this on my phone. These are so bad. Top click of the day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like, there's like this weird meta level where everyone in the room is like laughing about the fact they're all using their phones, but they all know it. So like social media is sort of one because it's developed its own sense of like, huh, look how like, ironic this is that we're all doing the thing we know is awful and i think that's even worse but as you say that's like a trust problem because it's almost like you need to have trust in whatever comes afterwards right so it's like well okay we need to stop doing this we need to replace it but there's almost now it's like asking people like what do you do before you had just 24 7 access to the internet or your phone and everyone's like yeah, i don't really i don't really know like what did what did wait what what did I did I just sit on the sofa and stare at the wall? Like I can't I can't remember. But but we're of the generation where it's like fifty fifty split, right? Of like the first fifty percent of my life was, you know, I'd ring up my friend's home phone <laughs> and then bike over and if he wasn't there, he just wasn't there. Whereas now it's like so we have that understanding of like the world before. So you have to sort of it's almost like a trust relationship of like, like there was this nicer time. Yeah, yeah, and we can't go. I don't know. I'm sort of rambling there. There's a lot of a lot of stuff I'm throwing. <laughs> we can't in. go back either. It's not like oh, the, the I don't necessarily think like media diets and like are are the answer. Like um, I think that we have to learn to integrate our under like to like know inside ourselves like what is healthy behavior on this thing and to exhibit that because I think it can have healthy behavior. I think there is like a way to have like a couple glasses of wine, you know, every other day. Um, as like without becoming, you know, having liver disease. Um, and so it, it can bring us together. It can bring us closer. It can, you know, I would never be talking to you otherwise. Um, so I, I think that there are benefits. We just have to learn to um, seek out the benefits. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's definitely benefits. The, uh, the look, the look on, look on my phone, how evil phones are a thing. I love that. It, it, you know, it speaks to, something that we've already mentioned a few times, the sheer impotence of information alone to make a difference. Like I'm not, I'm not a historian of journalism, but it seems like information used to be implicitly tied to action in a way that it's not anymore. And we're not really adjusting to that or it's socially acceptable. So like it doesn't matter so much. Um, but it seems, you know, we can't depend on new information to save us. Like it's not a research problem. It's a, there's some kind of emotional development that has to take place. I don't think it can take place. I don't think this is a, a new thing either. I think this has always been like the way our brains are wired, like our beliefs and our, our patterns are, are networks of connections. They're not in changing one connection isn't going to change the network and it'll just find another way around it. So like I, I oftentimes think about my beliefs and my routines as like the giant pile of rocks. And 
like I can have a conversation with you and we can together move one rock over there. Um, I still have this giant pile of rocks, which is like, now it's a little bit more spread out. Um, it takes repeated conversations, repeated interactions, re- and a relationship where we like we might both yeah. be carrying rocks together one at a time over the period of years for it to actually change the shape of this pile. Um, and we we think that this you know again we think that this, that our beliefs have an Achilles heel. We could just like chop off that one piece of information and now it's over there. But no, it's it's a hydra. Like we have to we have to sort of lull in all of the heads over here and get it to to move instead of just chopping them off yes how to lull people toward health is the uh the challenge and ourselves Um, and ourselves yeah yeah excuse i didn't mean to imply uh anything else there are a couple trends along these lines that i do like and I, i wonder if you see them similarly one is a lot of internet communities are forming either naturally or as businesses uh, where people are having regular conversations like salons, like interintellect or discord servers, like uh, Maximus tribe where people like-minded people who find each other on the internet, who use the internet for that wonderful thing, then sort of take those relationships to the next level and create shared interest communities and bring back the sort of emotional content to online life. Yeah, I think it's a good reaction because it's taking the problem and like sort of reversing it. So we're going back to um, small groups, which is great, but it doesn't fix the problem because like every community, if you've ever, I mean, I think you've probably built many communities, every community starts off perfect and like, okay, and then it gets older. And then some of the, some of the sort of norms become um, sort of anti-norms and then some bad you know characters come in and you have to ban them and like we're just repeating the same thing I, and i think that's like the the game a sort of like how they coined it like sort of fallacy is like oh we can solve this big community problem with a small community and then we'll grow that community to be big but then it will have the big community problems um so i don't yeah because yeah, every i tried to create a community that was um by design friendly and diverse and so i was trying to bring in people that did not normally belong in communities together and then to, to sort of sort of ham-fistedly sort of enforce friendliness um and it got to about 100 people and then like i got so exhausted i was like this is so hard this is so and i, I so then i closed it down because like this is i i know i'm you know, I don't. I tried that once, and then three years later, I'm still like, ah, oh, I, I should do that again. But I, I'm sort of still burnt out from it. Um, and it's really, really hard. And there are no examples of friendly and diverse communities that don't have a, a like. Every membership group has this rule. It's like if you don't follow our rules, you get kicked out. And any community that has that rule is going to come up. Is going to run into the same problems that we run into around like moderating abuse and you know, making people feel left out and like a power structure. And then eventually like the power has to protect itself. And then, you know, so I don't know, I guess I'm less optimistic than you. (laughs) And I'm, I'm sure I'm less informed than you having not uh, run a community like that, which is exactly uh, what I'm describing. And uh, that's, that's interesting that you tried to maximize diversity with with friendliness it seems like the perfect you know fertile ground to play with arguments Mm -hmm. and productive disagreements and 
it also reminds me of your take on fiction that these problems are sort of um, non-resolvable any sort of ultimate way. There's almost a fruit-like cycle to it, like it grows and becomes ripe and perfect, <laughs> and then it grows too much and and falls apart. Like there's this, uh, like on on Reddit, this is readily seen that you have small communities that are awesome between like one and five thousand people. And then they get a bunch of attention one day and it grows yeah, to 40,000 yeah. people and it all goes to shit. And the whatever kind of fiction that can make that satisfying and peaceful, I definitely see how that could contribute to people's sense of how things yeah, are, yeah, how stories yeah. are supposed we, to go. We use stories to predict what's going to happen. And then we become characters within that story of what's going to happen. And when that pattern is, is sort of self-destructive, um, it's going to be self-fulfilling. And until we have a, a, a story that we can imagine it going otherwise, like I, I really love, you know, Star Trek, I guess, for this sort of, sort of super optimistic um, um, storyline. And like some, like some solar punk sort of writers are trying to do this now too. And using sort of gritty, futuristic, but optimistic, not utopian, but not dystopian, um, sort of blended, mixed, mur like murky, complicated things to um, sort of build up a tolerance for that murkiness so that we can let it stretch out and grow without turning into an authoritarian sort of hellhole that you know has to you know, be burned down. <laughs> um, so I don't know. It's, I do, yeah. It all is intertwined in my head, but I don't know. I, I don't see very many examples of what I'm looking for yet. I'm still trying to imagine it. I just like reflecting on it. It just feels nice to imagine a story or like a mythic structure that kind of lets itself wind on and doesn't collapse in catastrophe or explode in mm -hmm. the kind of victory that's not sustainable in real life. Uh, I just find it yeah. a relaxing notion. So I'm just going to like and um, pause on that for a bit. Just to throw this in, like capitalism is a story that has done this. Like it's one, like when I think of ideologies um, that sort of expanded the, the group size um, beyond where it could be before, um, doing things just for money where you don't have to worry about like if it was right or if it was wrong or if it was good or bad or approved or unapproved. Um, allowed a lot of this to happen and, and so we need a we need a strawberry structure that beats the hero's journey and beats capitalism <laughs> in a certain sense of like because um they're so resilient i love i don't know if you've read how to do nothing by jenny odell but it's such a good book um and i she wrote this and i she published it and it did really well it's like barack obama's book of the week or something um and and I was, I heard her like a couple months after all the success had happened to her. She's like, I have become sort of um, captured by the system. <laughs> like my book is selling really well now. And now I, people are hiring me to talk about it. And I'm doing, I'm not doing what I was talking about anymore. Um, and it's just so, it's so perfect like that capitalism because it's like, no matter what your message is, it can be turned into a book and you can become known for that thing and you can make money from it. And then you're, 
you're sort of um, you're sort of been like vaccinated. <laughs> You've been the 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 T cell or whatever has come in and neutralized you as a threat to it. So um, it's so it's so interesting to think about. Yeah, this is this is like the the sort of the age old question with capitalism though, which I which I sort of love, which you know Bill Hicks takes this up and Deleuze and Guattari take this up, right? Which is like capitalism loves production so much that anti production becomes production. So it's like, yeah, man, we hate capitalism. Capitalism's like, yeah, that'd make a good t-shirt. Like, let's pump that out. And you, so you, you're in this absolute moment of complete, like, you can never jump the hurdle because capitalism always, unless you well to go back to like literally some sort of, an, you know, uh, what do you call it? Anarcho primitivist way of living where you're like just in a hut, like Thoreau and like, don't do anything capitalism will find a way which is sort of beautiful but at the same time it means you can never like form into something else because it's like right we have a community and it's going to be i don't know monarchist and capitalism be like yeah that'll make a lot of money and like nothing can ever nothing can ever escape it yeah at all (laughs) do it (laughs) and they'll fund you to do it and you know so it's like it's like that money python skit it's like the uh like i we're the anarchists, and I'm your leader. You know, so it's like, yeah, right. Like, yes, it's 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 a sad joke that it's really hard to escape. Um, especially like an individual can do it, and but it, it's not something that a group can do, and that sort of keeps it from being, you know, adopted. So, it's mm-hmm. a tricky problem. <laughs> I was just thinking about this. Uh, I really like this framing of it. My first thought as we were talking here was the fact that capitalism is so anti-fragile and I am no devoted capitalist by any stretch, but the fact that it's so anti-fragile, my first thought was might indicate some kind of strength or alignment with fundamental laws of reality, like the fruit-like cycle or something like that, or the vaccination sort of immune response kind of thing. But secondarily, um, when Toward the end there, I wonder if you use the Monty Python example. I wonder if this sort of anti-fragility is sort of something that's a quality of mythic structures rather than any particular mythic structure. Like maybe it's not capitalism, maybe it's just the fact that we're all in this story and therefore can interpret anything that comes in as affirming this story. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it goes deep. Whatever it, there is a way that it is mimicking the way we think, I think. Um, like, so like the fact that we think in lists makes lists really powerful. The fact that we like think in you know social hierarchies makes social hierarchies really powerful. Yeah. And so the deprogramming of that is is gonna be really tough. <laughs> We'd have to go back to our you know our fish brain um, to get there. Yeah, uh, <laughs> let, let's do it. Goldfish transhumanism. We'll just I love the size it. of our tanks and live happily ever after. Yes, <laughs> guys, we're in a really big tank. Why are we I here on this fucking doing rock? You know, hmm, interesting. I think uh, to be fair, like this is a theory that yeah. I've sort of come up with recently. I'm sure someone else has come up with it. I actually think we're already heading there, right? Because I saw a statistic the other day: twenty-five percent of people don't have an inner monologue. Right, that's a goldfish, isn't it? Surely walking around like not knowing, like, what does that mean? And I think capitalism is breeding. It means twenty-five people that's, are. That's just an automaton, yeah. though, isn't it? If you don't have an inner monologue. Like the perfect capitalist. Wait a sec. All right. So hang on. <laughs> it's either the perfect capitalist or the perfect meditator, but I doubt it's the second. So what the hell is the deal with it? Yeah. I, I've been wondering <laughs> about this because 
this is like the, the, the Wittgenstein beetle in a box problem. Like, how do you know that someone else means the same thing as you mm-hmm. by inner monologue? And maybe they have, like, I've heard maybe they have, they're more like imagery based instead. Like they think in full pictures at a time, or maybe there is some kind of like imagination layer that is deactivated because of mm. trauma. Mm. Like, I think that's possible too. Like you're just do, kind of operating Buster, how does that change arguments? one moment to the next. If someone, if you're talking to someone and they just don't have an inner monologue, yeah. what happens to arguments? I don't think our inner monologue helps us with arguments very much. Um, I, okay. I mean, I think we all overestimate our inner monologue too. Like chances are, if it's one out of four, one of us probably doesn't have one. Maybe it's me. I don't know. Maybe it's, but um, like, what is, like, how do we, we don't know what consciousness is. We don't know what will is. We don't know what inner monologue is. All we know is that a lot of the time we're acting instinctively about things. Like when, the fact that we are unable to achieve our goals as stated shows that we are self-sabotaging ourselves, right? In a, in a way that like we say this and it's not connected to what we're doing or saying or, um, and that's just, that's just human nature, I, th- I think. So if we had a perfect inner monologue that had perfect free will and also was um, sort of good, and <laughs> um, then the assumption would be that we could work our way out of these disagreements very easily. But um, I don't think we have that. I don't think that we have whatever is happening in our brains is is way more complicated than that. Yeah. And what you were saying about lists, we think in lists, so lists are very powerful. Like we work this way, so this is very powerful. I think that the ergonomic developments that are coming because of technology right now have the potential to be like these deep grooves of future behaviors and the things that you know come naturally and work the way we work will sort of draw us into aligning with those. We love convenience, so convenient things will catch on. We love lists, so lists will catch on. Uh, we love winning, so dominance hierarchies will catch on, things like that. And uh, <laughs> it, assuming that goldfish transhumanism is unrealistic or, or at, least, at least unprofitable, um, then it seems like... Unless he sold goldfish food. Mm, all right, hear that, Jeff Bezos? It's, it's to make this to make things real simple. Make supply chains real McDonald's, simple. Though, so yeah, there we go. Yeah. Okay. Um, assuming that's that's infeasible, I do think you know you were hinting at something that that I think is very valuable in the sense that these ancient evolutionary patterns and attractions for human beings are not the kind of thing that can be willed away or moralized away or suppressed like they're things that have to be accepted and worked with worked within like limits i'm reminded of centuries of suppression of the sexual instinct and all the problems that that caused well now that we're learning that information is not that important to people or that we love lists or love dominance hierarchies or whatever we have to treat these as things that are not going away and start from that place rather than moralizing and trying to force things mm-hmm, to go a different mm-hmm, route. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, like um, I, I have I have that approach for all bias, cognitive biases in general. It's like we don't—they're not bugs in our brains. They are there to like help us around real limits in our ability to think. And there aren't alternatives. Like, there's no way to drop the ability to favor familiar things or to you know 
<laughs> look, notice weird things. Like, um, it's just because otherwise we just have a fire hose of information and we're, we're dead. Um, so we have to start with the assumption, like, yes, we have biases. Yes, we're causing harm with those biases to ourselves and to other people. Um, how can we repair that harm, perhaps, is a good question to ask. How can we repair the harm we're causing to each other, to ourselves? Um, and how do we help other people repair harm as well? Like, I think that would be working within these, like, rather than pointing fingers at you're biased, you're biased, you're biased. Yes, okay, yeah, we are, we're, we're biased. But um, now what? What are we going to do now? We all know this. How do we continue being biased and alive together? And um, <laughs> let's start with those ideas because they never, I call this a gateway problem. We never get past the first question of like, who's, who's the problem? <laughs> um, to actually saying, okay, well, we're all, we're all, you might be the problem. Maybe I think you're more of a problem than I am, but we're both the problem. Let's focus on a solution. Um, and that means hopefully trying things that, and seeing what happens instead of just, again, dealing with blame. Did I ramble this off a cliff? <laughs> no, no, I'm actually kind of, I'm actually kind of practicing just giving things space and not trying to like Ooh. fill it in. Cause, cause I, I love where this conversation is going. I don't want to like coerce it into any particular time. I'm trying to live the, th the, the thing we, the paragraph you just said. Yes. Awesome. Like <laughs> if things are moving in this direction, don't yeah. try to like force it into some other direction. Maybe we, maybe we could, Add in the other question because Buster, you've spoken about what you what you're long on, what's you know what do you think's what you think's coming that will be beneficial, but you know it's always <laughs> it's always fun to talk about negative things and uh, indulge in what we don't like or don't think's going to go well or you know dunking on other people's silly ideas. Uh, go you know going into the future is there something you you've seen that's you know bellowing up at the moment or people are people are really hyped about that you just think this is i am sure on this i would bet for this to just plummet be it an idea or even maybe a i saw today i mean just to give an example of something i'm sure on immediately just because i need to get this in there i saw they're doing like compact discs of food now <laughs> what I don't know. I'll have to send. I'll have to send. Where do this. you put it? You know that film soiling. I threw away my CD I, player a long time no, ago. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah, I definitely don't have one. No, it's, it's like I can't remember what they're called. They're called. It's called Squared, and it's like literally a little square. Like see the film Soylent Green. Just you take your daily chicken square and you're done. Yeah. Yeah, man. Future. The future's now. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Buster, what what are you what are you short on? Oh. This is when Buster tells me that he's now working at a new startup called Squared. <laughs> no. yeah. I, I've never liked Soylent, but I also, I, I, I don't think it's going away. I think everything just gets added to the pile and maybe it, you know, isn't in a small niche for forever. Or like, I've made so many predictions of, like I've been in tech since 98 when I was first joined Amazon and um, I love making predictions. So I've always made them and I've been wrong on almost everything. So um <laughs> I, I don't, and usually I'm like, oh, this is just such a fad. It's going to go away. I thought that about AWS, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, how stupid is that? But yeah. Um, and then things that I loved like Cosmo, which I don't think you might not know, but it was, it was basically like um, Postmates um, back in 2000 and it was so great. And, I, and it died. I'm like, oh man, that was just too good to exist. And then it came back 10 years later. So um, 
everything comes back, I think, in some form. Like Google Glass, you know, went away, but I'm sure it's coming back. Um, so, but what I'm short on, let's see if I can think of something. Um, yeah, feel free to be as ranty and silly as you as you feel. It's a safe space. Hmm. Some there's things that I wish would go away, um, but I don't think they will. Yeah, you can tell there's something. I'll, there's I'll something there. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was, I was, I was not a fan of. You know, this is you know sort of relevant to your business. Like, I was not a. I didn't think cryptocurrency was going to last. I thought it was stupid. I bought one Bitcoin at like 300 bucks and was like, that's my insurance against it like going away. Um, but I'm really now bullish on um, like sort of all the NFTs and DOs and things like that are, I don't know how it's going to work. It looks like it's sort of like a train wobbling on the tracks that might like, but like some of the train cars might fall off, but then like new ones will get added. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think it's going to go away. Um, I don't know. I would say, I might even, I might say that working in an office might go away um, easily, at least in certain concentrated areas. Um, I think gasoline powered cars will go away. I think schools and university. Oh, I do have a long bet about universities going away. That's a good one. Um, I made that 11 years ago and it was a 20 year bet. So um, I only have nine years to go, <laughs> but um they're, they're, they're why, why, why do you think that is? Think. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Don't tell any professors that I like professors don't like hearing that, but um, I, I think that there are way better ways to learn. It's just not the best way to learn. Um, I mean, it's not even close to like most schools. I think that there's two problems. One of them is that schools aren't for learning. They're for filtering out non-compliant behaviors from people. So they become good employees. So, Something will need to continue doing that, um, and maybe that's what schools will become. But in terms of like learning, I'm not like there's there's no there's no there's no obstacle to learning in the world anymore. Um, so why pay so much money for it? It's just like this. There's so, there's social structures that sort of certificate you know um, value, but um, as soon as some of those things get replaced, I think. Do you think that one of the maybe the the overlooked problems with that is that we'll even in an actually a market like function, you'll suddenly be able to view the subjects and topics and themes which are basically being upheld by a artificial stimulus. Right. So people are like the things which people are naturally interested in, want to learn about, those people will be employed. You might suddenly see a thousand adverts for, I don't know, like, I really want to teach you ancient Norse languages. And you're like, yeah, man, but there's, there's no, you know, there's no market for that. And I'm not dunking on ancient Norse languages. I'm just saying, there's I wonder market, how much. And most people will be stoked <laughs> to find it, though. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I, what I'm saying is, I wonder if all of a sudden, perhaps something which is predominantly pushed maybe by governments within universities you'd it would suddenly the 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 floor would fall out of it and you'd, you'd a lot of people would be without a job yeah because the actual interest isn't there yeah i mean i think that's the problem though too is that yeah the the, the loss of jobs causes a new problem um that currently, like if anything was going to kill it, it would be the pandemic. But I think you just saw universities just tighten their grips on 
the purse strings of their of their students, um, and they don't want to let go. So I, I think that that's a real, you know, I think even I don't know. There's a lot of I, I could rant on that one for sure, um, <laughs> but I'm also I don't want to I don't want to be offensive to people that are that do have those jobs. Like I, it's not that I think that they're wasting their time. I just think that um, I predict that it's. I value them as people. I hope they figure out a way, but um, and it's not under my control, so I, I'm not really actually hurting them. But <laughs> yeah, uh, no. As as someone who sort of uh, runs my own philosophy podcasting and see this sort of stuff happening, and you know, we spoke to Justin Murphy, who's sort of helping academics sort of transition from the academy to just teaching by themselves, teaching online courses. I'm I'm sort of with you. You don't want to be mean to them, but it's almost like a deep sympathy of like the whole career so far has been all about teaching in a very rigorous tight academic setting and you're not given any of the skills of like actually viewing what you've learned as a skill which you can sell where uh, you know as opposed to this is just the skill Mm -hmm. just for universities and you're never taught to think like hmm maybe people just want to talk about you know philosophy or uh whatever it might be um but there is going to be, a, I think, a short, sharp shock when it's, you know, it, it's over and you're suddenly left with a lot of people who, I don't know, I think the sad thing would be that many of them perhaps just give up that that career and just do something else because they don't actually know mm-hmm. that it's and marketable. the market, though, might be smaller. Like, it's not going to be one-to-one. Um, it'll be sort of like maybe moving from print to digital, like where the, the, number, the amount of money is a lot less, the number of people requires a lot less. Um, but I don't know, I, I was an English major, so I knew coming out of college that I was already disposable, that I had nothing you know, going for me. Um, and so I had to repurpose my skills to other, like, to, um, startup world. And that worked fine. I think the humanities are really good at that. Like there's a lot of humanities stuff that like is really general and makes you able to learn and adapt quickly to the changing world, which is helpful. And then there's like the trade skills and like sort of more the deeper sciences and um, those are good, you know, so there's a lot of like, but it's, it's a shift and like not, it's not gonna, it's gonna hurt people and it's probably gonna hurt people that are like less able to help themselves more. And so it's sort of like this new power imbalance that, you know, like similar with global warming, like the poor people are going to be hurt the worst. And, you know, the, the people that have enough money to, to address it don't care because they won't be hurt. Um, so chaos, damage that will need to be repaired. Um, but it's just a prediction, so I don't know. <laughs> I just wish, I know, I, I don't know. I, I think that it's, it'll be interesting to watch it unfold. It has been interesting to watch it unfold. And it always happens a lot slower than I think it will. So there'll be probably be not 20 years, but 50 years. The declining emphasis on the kinds of credentials that typically come from universities, especially in areas where they're not needed for regulatory reasons, like law licenses, medical licenses, things like that. I'm kind of excited to see how that might benefit younger people. Because if the economy and employability and wealth generation, all that stuff has less to do with credentials and more to do with accomplishments. And the internet affords a playground to gather up some accomplishments. 
then we don't have to wait for people to become 22 and have bachelor's degrees to start contributing to the world. I'm really excited to see what that ends up looking like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, me too. That's, yeah, and it will really work well for some fields and less well for other fields. I mean, I'm sure like the the doctors and nurses will (laughs) be, um, you know, like, hey, come to my house and I'll I'll fix your kidneys. Um, It's not going to apply as well, but. Um. <laughs> well, I wonder if something like a concierge doctor will come back and then maybe something like you've heard of cloud kitchen. So like cloud surgery rooms, there like are you have your concierge. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's fun. It is fun to think about, but also terrifying. I'm sure if you're in there. Um, so, Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Do you think, do you think, would you bet against me for this production of colleges to go away and let's, let's give it another 20 years. I would. I would. I, I, I mean, you. Go ahead. I was going to say. I mean, you said you got nine years left on your bet. I think that's when we'll start to see the, the beginning of like the middle. I think we've already seen the seen the beginning. We're seeing it online already for people who are a bit ahead of the curve, and we're certainly seeing a lot of uh, humanities faculties, especially in the UK, governments cutting funding or people just aren't interested anymore. It's taking a lot more to get people involved. Like younger people, because of the internet, are like they they they. They already see, like, you know, literally memes online about people being in tons of debt for no reason. People are plugged in from this from from probably like the ages of eight and up now. So they're they're like ahead of their education system telling them. So I think I think your prediction is is pretty good. I think it'll be the beginning of the middle. That'll be when it's really clear the end of those nine years. Mm. But I think the you know I I would be really interested to see the real off on the timing. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting to see the real last years of universities. I think it might even happen sooner, at least as far as like the status centers are concerned. I wouldn't be surprised if people think of Harvard and Yale in five years, like we currently think of CNN, like they're big and powerful, but generally like the elite, you know, technologists and, and thought leaders with the most actual power right now don't really regard them as immovable forces anymore yeah i think i think i think it could be even sooner and i i went to college i started college in 2007 and mostly because i didn't really have another particular plan but i i left and came back many times because i was already feeling like I like the internet. I know how to use it. You can spin up a website for free. You can write. You can sell stuff. It already was apparent that for $100,000 in four years, there's a lot more you can do with that than you know the educational equivalent of working in an office, let's say. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, you know, I could, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Cool. I'm right in the middle of here. Um, I feel pretty safe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm fascinated, therefore, like I, 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 one of the things I've appreciate about the pandemic, which is a weird phrase, but how quickly online learning and meeting became sort of mainstream and acceptable. Like this was technologically, there was nothing preventing this from happening, but it created the cultural will to acknowledge these new kinds of operating. And I think the educational startup space is going to be really interesting in the next few years. I'm no longer like 
in school type things so much, but for younger people, I would love to see what they might have access to that that's better than the typical school experience. Yeah. It became very apparent to me that like school is a convenience for parents <laughs> as a parent of two kids <laughs> who were no longer in school for a year and a half. Like it's, it was brutal and parenting and working is impossible. Like, I don't know how anyone worked for that higher now. I don't think people did. Yeah. There's that too. It's like, there's, there's a couple side benefits, like the, the fact that your kids are gone out of the house, so you can work. It's like the fact that employers want to have simpler hiring processes. And so having a credential does simplify that. And so big names do count for more. And they also signal that like, Hey, if you can show up to school every day for 18 years, you could probably show up for a job as well. Um, so I think those three things are going to like put the brakes on in, on this exodus, but yeah, it definitely, I do, I do love that remote work has become more possible because it, it's just, you know, I didn't actually have a job during this pandemic. So, or where a job where I had to be on zoom all day. Um, but it's, I like that zoom quickly caught up in features to like handle that and somehow it worked hobble along for the people that didn't have kids. <laughs> so a lot of caveats. <laughs> if, uh, if school is so much a convenience for parents, which is a sentiment that is not difficult to justify, I don't think. To what extent is work a convenience for governments? Like people kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of a very similar pattern and, and schedule. How might that evolve? Do you feel I, something I, I definitely about that? subscribe to the I, mean, I don't believe in work ethic as an as a virtue um i'm not like oh as long as you're working you're a good person like, i don't believe that um i think people can work for harm as well as good I and mean, i feel like i spent many years of my career causing more harm than good so um it would have been better just to not have worked <laughs> um, other than you know being paid for it um so i i know in my cynical mind you know i think you know, life has been reduced to paying taxes through the government. Um, like that, that's the main output of our lives is like generating tax money and generating the future taxpayers. Um, and that's self-propagating. That's a cynical view of life that, you know, hopefully we can see that there's more to, uh, more to it than that. But that is a default mode that many of us can exist within. Um, and it's sort of terrifying. But I feel like, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a better option, but it just means that hopefully we can look for better options. Yeah. And uh, I, I want to catch up a little bit. The, 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 the cynical place is a place to start and you seem to be <laughs> in well, reasonably good spirits and, and, you know, come on, like a lot of, a lot of cynical people are, uh, you know, have never thought about how they argue and, and the productiveness of, of that. And I think there's something really powerful in coming from a cynical place with an optimistic thrust of some kind or a solution orientation of some kind, or even just a virtue of some kind, like patience or listening or something like that. Um, so I think that, that's awesome. I also wanted to say, I met my wife online on like a proto social media 
network like before Facebook and then we fell out of touch and reconnected on Facebook. So like which one? Uh I never tell anyone. Uh but now I'm <laughs> now I'm about to tell everyone. It was right. called it was called buddypick.com. Oh yeah. I recall the name. I don't remember Yeah. Um you're the first person that I've ever told who's who's recalled the name. But yeah, it was way, you know, it was maybe like a descendant of Hot or Not that turned into something with profiles and, mm-hmm. you know, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we, yeah, we yeah, were that like, was a good time with the internet. Yeah, that was super fun and innocent. And I don't know, it's just like <laughs> in the golden ages of, of, of that stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, so I harbored, to, to say I harbored no ill will to people who built social media is just kind of a ridiculous thing to, to start with. But I think it fits the story structure that you're interested in that we have, you know, that the solutions to problems are not conclusive, that we create new problems and hopefully they're preferable, but they're always going to just keep fractally creating this infinite frontier of problems. And like, as long as we move in the direction of preferable, maybe that's some kind of progress. And I have pretty much infinite optimism that social media can, can get more preferable, can get better that, you know, all the things that are happening now, all, you know, bear, bear a lot of fruit. So mm-hmm. I, I couldn't, couldn't resist the urge to um, try to make you feel better because <laughs> I like Twitter. I like Twitter. I'm on it every day. I am too. You know, yeah, I think I, I, I am an optimist too. I, I think that, you know, I, and I hope that things turn out okay. Um, and I also think that, you know, there is just an inherent meaninglessness to all of life anyway. So like, it, was, it is really important that we find a way to enjoy life even as it is like unbearably suffering and sort of painful, like you have to sort of find ways to do both at the same time and not, not just become a nihilist. Um, even if we could do that or um, not just um, become self-loathing about our own uh, sort of place in it and, or, or demonize everyone else. So I think there's like real obvious things to avoid in terms of responding to reality and, um, sort of its sort of depressing nature, but um, yeah, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive to being also caring about people, trying to repair harm that has been caused, um, appreciating nuance, appreciating beauty, um, enjoying company, um, sort of anticipating exciting things in the future, enjoying food and drink and you know sun and walks and like so. There's so much to enjoy. Um, and sometimes they are the ones that fit narratives the least well. They're the, the boring, simple pleasures of life that um, end up becoming the most meaningful ones. Um, I, I'm oftentimes, I, I'm obsessed with death and my, I have like this 100 year map of my life and I map every week and sort of predict my death date and think a lot about my deathbed and what I'm gonna regret. And, and uh, you know, so it's, it's, and it's a tool for letting go of that like, because like I think in the early parts of our lives, we we're given this like the goal is out there, you can achieve it, you'll have it at some point, and at some point you're like, oh shit, there's not enough, there's not enough time, and I don't think I'm going to do that. What can I enjoy in the meantime <laughs> while I'm still here? Um, and it helps to reframe it in that way. Like I don't need to solve every problem. I I would like my contribution to be positive even if it doesn't solve any problems. Like even a, even if I'm just a grain of sand that never gets to the action threshold, or no, I'm mixing metaphors like crazy here, but like <laughs> it doesn't break the camel's back or you know, uh, start the, the, the landslide, but 
it's a grain of sand. Um, it's something that was there, was present, it happened, and I enjoyed it. And that's sort of how I can maintain um, enough mental health to actually care about people and to want to spend time with them and raise children and, and meet new people and be on podcasts and stuff. Yeah. Well, whatever you're, whatever you're doing, I think is, is working. Cause I really appreciate what you contribute to conversations, both personal and, you know, in discourse in general, I think, uh, arguing is, is mm-hmm. an important part of life right now. And, uh, I, I, I'd like to ask what else you've learned from your process of, of thinking about your death and anticipating it and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm an atheist, and you know, so I think I'm going to die, and it's all over. But at the same time, um, my my goal, like I have two goals in life. One of them is to ride a bike around the block on my hundredth birthday, um, and it's like basically being healthy enough to ride a bike around the block, like having a quality of life long enough, um, and that changes a lot of the ways about how I behave in my day to day. And then the other one is to be at peace with becoming dirt and to sort of see how being dirt ain't so bad <laughs> and how <laughs> dirt is really alive. And like, we're, we're part of this like, sort of, sort of, sort of draws me out into the world, not just my family and my community and humanity and the earth, but like just the universe in terms of like, these are, we're all particles and um, we're doing this weird thing. And I don't want to, I don't get woo woo about it, but it's like, there is something like the dirt is doing stuff, like everything is doing stuff and it's sort of beautiful. So if I can, there are moments in my life when I can, can get there and other times where I'm just so terrified. And so, yeah, I, I, there's, when I was a kid uh, and I'm rambling, you can stop me in time, but when I was a kid, I would wake up, I would stay awake every night and just like contemplate death and be like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die for real. Not just like in a story, not just in, you know, in my as an idea but as a reality and then no matter how much i think about this i'm trapped in this sort of mortality um, and it gave me this like this vertigo feeling of like panic attack almost every night and um it sucked is like the most disturbing thought um it's like peeling away these onion layers like okay i, I protect myself from this thought all day long all my all for years and sometimes then i can get to the middle of it and it sucks um but that like panic attack when it wears off, it creates this really powerful appreciation for life and really powerful gratitude for the time that I am alive. And it helps me re reprioritize things where like, um, you know, the things that I might be annoyed with or that might, um, that I might think of as dredge drudgery, like I can find ways to appreciate them, um, right now. And, like that seems so precious, you know, to a to a kid, and even even now, um, to like find ways to motivate. It's like this endless source of motivation to appreciate life, to connect with people, to hold everyone close together, to bring them in, um, and uh, it doesn't like it's it's it won't it doesn't ever run out because the other half of the coin is also so starkly powerful um, in a different way. So I think that's what's helped me. It makes me sort of a morbid person to talk to sometimes. So like every year celebrate my anniversary of my predicted death, you know, it's it's sort of weird, but um, uh, it also, I I think it does power this 
post cynical nihilistic perspective of I don't know I don't know how to reduce it to something that doesn't sound super cheesy but like just appreciation for life. Yeah, hundred percent. I <laughs> bring on the cheese. I went skydiving once and jumped out of the plane and it just felt like lying on a bed made of air you just wind everywhere and you can't really you're so high up it doesn't feel like you're moving and you see the ground far away it's like not even a concern it's just way over there <laughs> that's future problem and, you problem yeah yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> and then you know later when we pulled the shoot i'm sitting in the i'm sitting in a chair in the sky as louis ck put it and then i was just kind of looking down and for a second I comprehended that that is the ground and I am this far from it and was terrified for like a second. And then like, whoop, just kind of, uh, you know, zoned back out of it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, we can have our eyes open and not like get the gravity of something. And it sounds like you were plugged into the gravity of mortality from a really early age. And I've been dealing with it like in a real way, in a way that is probably pretty uncommon, probably not incredibly typical. I think that's cool. I think that's cool. And the point you made about priorities, I think is really pertinent as well. Like we've talked about how there's such a difference sometimes between what institutions or people or whatever say their goal is and what they end up doing or the effect that they end up having. And what that's recently indicated to me is like some kind of perverse priorities, that the stated priority is not the actual priority, and that what we prioritize has this harmonizing effect on everything beneath it. Like there has to be just by nature. There has to be a top priority. Everyone has a top priority, whether they like acknowledge it or not. And whatever it really is determines the structure of everything else and the, your relationship to everything else. It has like this sort of ordering effect. And when you talk about the way that death has uh, been a focal feature of, of prioritization, something you know, sort of immovable that everything else hangs on and that it brings everything else sort of into uh, a new light, uh, I think is really powerful. And it sounds like it's been very rewarding. It sounds like it's had, you know, a lot of positive aspects and the patience that you have and the chillness that you have to like enjoy the leaves blowing on the street in this world where you could be in VR Twitter with nfts <laughs> and you know i i think is is really cool and um lastly i've been i i when i when i met my wife and you know all those years ago i was an atheist at the time and that uh changed i did a hundred a complete you know 100, 180 degree on that and i've been thinking about writing a little ebook or article series or something on you know the atheist guide to god and i mm. would I would not be so so 
arrogant as to say, I'm going to try to change your mind or anything like that. Oh, go ahead and try. I'd love I to. Would, <laughs> well, then I would, I would love to throw drafts at you and just yeah. play with this because I think that, that would be a really exciting awesome. uh, conversation. Yeah, I love that, that whole. I mean, I did spend, yeah, years of my life. I was raised atheist and I spent many years going into church and exploring every single cult I could join um, that had a free onboarding plan. Um, and so I'm, I'm obsessed with belief structures and, you know, I maintain my own beliefs document and GitHub. And, uh, you know, I know enough about belief to know that it's not, it's not, they're not written in our heads or in our souls. Like we come up with yeah. them as we talk about them. Um, but uh, yeah. I, you know, there's no belief I have that I'm not willing to change for sure. That's one that I would love to be, um, to, I don't know, to continue to explore. So and it sounds like a fun thing to write too. Yeah, I, I, I'm drawn to it be, for, for that. I think it, I think it would be fun and it would be a fun thing to play with. And if, if there's anything more to say, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear it. But in the meantime, I, I really want to thank you for coming on and having this fun conversation with us. I've had an awesome time. Yeah, this is great. I just really, really appreciate it. With some, some fun places, like this is a good slice of, of many different topics. So I really enjoyed it as well. So thanks for, for reaching out. Absolutely. Great pleasure. Cool. Take care. Thank you. Thanks very much, Busta.